Hello everybody and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 6, issue 279, and today we're discussing Legacy of Cain, Soul Reaver. As always, you can play along with Cane and Rinse volume 6. Our upcoming episodes are Until Dawn, Super Hexagon, the Super Nintendo classic, Super Mario Kart, The Witcher 2, Assassins of Kings, continues our Witcher series, and then finally, Destiny. So, joining me, Carl Moon, in this episode are Michael Croder. Hi. Mark Hamer. Hello. And John Linneman. Hi, how's it going? So, Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver. We are going into the second Legacy of Kane game. I know it's not something that we like to do, but there is very good reason why we've done this. This is more for the technical attributes that, that Soul Reaver brought at the end of the PlayStation generation going forwards into PlayStation 2 and so forth. More than it is a coverage of the series of Legacy of Kane. that does not mean that we will never cover it in the future. So this is a game, it was developed by Crystal Dynamics. They developed the version on the PlayStation and the PC. And also Nix's Software BV, uh, the Dutch company that tend to port games over to other consoles and continue to do so very successfully, uh, having just done Tomb Raider, the 20th anniversary edition. They did the Dreamcast edition of this game, the publisher, Idos Interactive. Now, this is where we break down the team, and there are some names that I'm sure you'll recognise. We have the director and lead designer and co-writer, Amy Hennig, possibly most famous from the Uncharted games, now working with Visceral on the latest Star Wars project. The designers, Richard Lemachand, who is a hands-on production-oriented lead designer, and Seth Karras, who is the lead designer and co-writer, both of which now actually work in Californian universities teaching games design. And it does feature a celebrity composer, Kurt Harland, who was probably most famous for his synth-pop band, Information Society, which did have some mainstream success in the late 80s and early 90s. He made the move over to video game composition in 1995 and ran through a string of games, this being by far the largest profile. Audio and visual manager of the project was Steve Papoutsis, who later moved to Visceral Games. He worked on the Dead Space series as a senior producer and then franchise executive producer. Later, Amy Hennig would also end up working there as a studio lead for the upcoming Star Wars project. Coincidence? Probably not. There are notable others involved with this game. It does feature a very highly experienced voice cast from a range of television, video gaming and animated shows. Uh, Michael Bell, Tony Jay, Simon Templeman, Neil Ross and Richard Doyle can all be heard uh, throughout the game. The one exception to the highly experienced cast members is the voice of Ariel, who's only ever appeared in four video games, all of which were Legacy of Kane titles. The voice of Ariel, however, is multiple Emmy Award winner Anna Gunn, perhaps best known for her role as Skylar White in Breaking Bad. So this obviously gave her the start that she needed in life to really push on and win those <laughs> Emmys. The format that this game was released on, it was released on three different ones. The Sony PlayStation on August 16th, 1999. The Windows PC in September 8th, 1999. And Sega Dreamcast on the January 27th of the year 2000. With that, we will get on to our histories. So, Mikel, what is your history with Legacy of Kane Soul Reaver? Mm, I saw the game running at a friend's place uh, on his PlayStation back, uh, uh, PlayStation One back in uh, 1998, and you know it was at a time where the magic of the first Tomb Raider had already worn off, and I was uh, well into my N64 games and some PC games, and I had developed a bit of a bad taste for PlayStation games attempting to render 3D game environments. So you know the usual texture warbling and severe clipping 
contributed to what uh, me and another friend had dubbed uh, game worlds that are crafted out of paper mache. You know, it looked like everything was about to collapse in in our uh, in our minds. So this is also in light of what Rare and Nintendo were doing on the N64 and Hit and Epic and Valve were doing on the PC. And they were creating polygon-built places that felt uh, much more solid than what you would see on the, on the PlayStation 1. But immediately when I saw the game being played, I felt that Soul Reaver was different. It looked more fluid, uh, larger in scope than any other uh, PlayStation 1 game. And what struck me perhaps more than anything uh, was the crazy cool morphing of the environments when you were shifting planes uh, in it. Also the brilliant atmosphere and the intriguing main character certainly helped to really make a lasting impression on me. And it always looked like a game that I wanted to play. So when a friend had uh, sold me his Dreamcast in 2010, uh, and I was look looking deeper into the systems library, I suddenly realized that I now had access to maybe the, the best looking and playing version of the, of the game. So I went and bought it uh, in the uh, the exact same year in a retro gaming store in Amsterdam. But I never actually really got around to sit down and play through the whole thing. I usually used my newly acquired Dreamcast in 2010 and onwards for short bursts of arcade-style gaming. So when it showed up on the list of games to cover for this year in Kane Rinsk, I was pretty eager to join up and to have a good incentive to finally play through this game that managed to impress me back in 1998. And Mac, what's your history? I seem to remember playing the demo of this um, from some, you know, demo disc that came with the uh, official PlayStation magazine or something like that back in the day. Um, and I remember there not being a lot in the demo, but enjoying it enough to uh, want to pick up the full game. Now, I'd never played um, the first uh, Blood Omen, uh, so I didn't really know anything about the, the Legacy of, of Kane series. I was still quite young when that game came out, and I hadn't played anything that had that intriguing of a of a story or had voice acting anywhere near that level. I mean, I still think to this day that it's got some of the best voice acting. Yeah, I was just bewitched by it and kind of hooked, and it started a bit of a love affair with that series that has never really ended for me. I mean, I think the voice acting is definitely something that we'll discuss a, a little later on. It definitely stands out. We covered Castlevania Symphony of the Night, a game that was released a year or earlier than this on this podcast, and we love it while you know widely across the team. And I, I think it's one of the all-time true classic games. But you listen to the voice acting there, and then something like this, and you're talking absolute worlds apart. John, how about yourself? What's your history with the game? Yeah, so like Mark, I actually started first with the demo disc, which uh, included a very early build of Soul Reaver that was sort of like, I think it's called the Lighthouse demo now, where it's basically two areas and you can complete it in less than five minutes. And then I didn't actually think about it again until, well, it started to come out, but it was right around the time of the launch of Dreamcast in North America. And I was completely on the Dreamcast train and this sort of ignored Soul Reaver at the time. So when it did launch on the Dreamcast in January, I picked it up on the day of release and played through it then. And yeah, I was also really impressed with the voice acting, though. Really, I think uh, it was Metal Gear Solid that first like really opened my eyes to what voice acting could be. But there's some, there's kind of, I think, uh, did Chris Zimmerman do the direction on this one as well? I can't recall, actually. But 
that's something I need to check. But yeah, that's so a good point. There seems to be a lot of overlap uh, when it concerns good voice acting in games. Yeah, in yeah, right. Yeah. Like she was one of the people that really helped push for high quality voice acting in in games of that era. And once we got there, you know, Metal Gear Solid was one of the first, but then obviously Soul Reaver followed that up and was just absolutely incredible in that regard. But then, yeah, the game itself was extremely enjoyable and just a beautifully thought out adventure that was rich with visual detail and just a massive world free of loading, all of which really impressed me at the time. So the Dreamcast version was my first, and then I did later pick it up on PlayStation and even the PC. (laughs) So myself, my first exploration into the world of Nosgoth was like John and Mark, the demo disc. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It definitely definitely worked. Uh, This wasn't the one that was bundled with a Kooji. It was one of the many that was thrown on the front of either official PlayStation magazine or PSM, who at the time in the UK were also putting out discs on the front, I believe. Uh, It was the kind of demo disc. It also had Roll Cage on it and, and a bunch of the other playstation games that were coming out towards the end of the that's of kind the of interesting actually because i mean you guys would have had a different demo disc than i would have had in the u.s right i mean i know Absolutely, yeah so they obviously were like sticking this demo in 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 as many places as possible even though it was extremely early and super rough but it did sell the atmosphere of the game and this was a big thing for me so regardless of the animation the whole world won me over and i ended up picking it up on the playstation and it felt a little bit rough it it fell into the flaws that many of the other 3d games did the texture warping being the big one so i sort of put it on the back burner and i picked it up on the Dreamcast, because right out the gates you could see it was just a better looking game. So when it came out on the Dreamcast, that was the version that I stuck to. I was aware that it was a, a good edition of this game and and that it was quite highly thought of. I mean, it was already picking up high reviews on, on the PlayStation. I mean, the average review from game rankings on the PlayStation carries an 88.16%. It's an 87.94 on the Dreamcast. And the Windows PC version is a 78.18% as well. So it, it did sell relatively well. We don't have specific sales figures for the PC and Dreamcast edition, but it has sold over a million copies on the PlayStation of 1.04 million copies as of June 2017. So doesn't seem that high by today's figures, but a million copies of this game for a PlayStation game is pretty good. Yeah, that's the thing. It's totally different these days, but a million back then, that's huge. It was, it was a really big deal for IDOS. Big time. So the game opens up. Soul Reaver takes place within the fictional world of Nosgoth, where the health of the land is tied to the nine pillars, and each pillar in turn is represented by a guardian. Before the events of Soul Reaver, the guardians became corrupt, and after Cain killed eight of them, discovered he was the final one. Refusing to sacrifice himself to restore the pillars, he doomed Nosgoth to eternal decay and proceeded to raise his vampire lieutenants, including Raziel, to besiege the land. By the time of Soul Reaver's introduction, the vampires are now the land's dominant species, the humans have been decimated, and the vampire tribes have each claimed regions of Nosgoth and have turned their attention to internal matters. Unknown to the vampires, beneath Nosgoth lurks the Elder God, an ancient and powerful entity. The Elder God controls the Wheel of Fate, a cycle of reincarnation of souls that circle the wheel in a loop of predestination. However, because vampires are immortal, their souls do not spin the wheel, causing the land to decay as the wheel stalls. By the time that Raziel is revived, centuries after the game's opening cinematic, Nosgoth is on the brink of collapse, little more than a wasteland, racked with cataclysms and earthquakes. 
As the game begins, Raziel approaches Cain's throne and extends his newly grown wings. In an act of seeming jealousy, Cain tears the bones from Raziel's wings and has him thrown into the Lake of the Dead. Raziel, however, is resurrected as a wraith by the Elder Gods to become his sole reaver and kill Cain, thus restoring Nosgoth. It's a pretty powerful start of a game, isn't it? It's, it definitely makes an impact, um, and it's actually something that several members of our community have left feedback on uh, regarding the, the introduction to the game. There's a lot there that immediately pulls you in to want to play the game. That opening cinematic, I mean, by today's standards, it looks a little bit shaky, but at that time, it just completely blew me away. I mean, if you look back at other games of CGI from that era, they actually do look significantly worse than what Soul Reaver had to offer. Mm. So you're right. It does look a little dated now, but I think it still holds up pretty well and is yeah. quite watchable. It really has that thick atmosphere going on. Yeah, I, it's, it has this thing, you know, that I often have when I go back to older games where I'm actually kind of wowed by how, how good it looks for the time. Hmm. And we've got Ashman, who left some feedback on the forum regarding the opening to the game. And he says, I can still hear the harsh horns echo in the recesses of my mind, along with Raziel's narration of Soul Reaver's opening cinematic, which is burned into my memory virtually word for word. Before ever having actually played the game, I must have watched that introduction at least a dozen times, completely enthralled with the Hollywood quality animation, the otherworldly aesthetics and the dramatic and poetic writing. As we said, it, it looked a lot better than the vast majority of CG we'd seen produced on PlayStation 1 discs. Uh, Big time. And it's an ideal leaning for the story to build upon. Um, you start a game out like that, as, as you're more likely to be intrigued. And it, it's definitely something that worked for me and made me want to play further. And if we go beyond that a little bit to where Raziel wakes up uh, in the, the festering presence of the Elder God, this whole, this whole thing uh, that he explains about the Wheel of Fate and the cycle of reincarnation, that's some really deep mythology building right from the, from the get-go. That's, mm. uh, a whole lot of thought has gone into that that you wouldn't see very often in, uh, in action games, at least. Yeah, that's something that I picked up on when I first played through it, and it's something that stuck with me, is that, um, like you, you mentioned the uh, the voice acting in Metal Gear Solid, and I, I agree the voice acting in Metal Solid is great, but that story is, um, how can I politely put this? It's crazy. <laughs> it's a, Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's a bit dumb, you know, in a really good way. Yeah. Whereas this is a really serious story, told in a serious way you know it, it doesn't try to, to make light of anything and and it doesn't yeah. treat the audience as it, it, it treats the audience as you know intelligent that's a very good point it, well, it uses a lot more grown-up language <laughs> than a lot of games of that time um including yeah. I remember when i first played through it some words that i had to look up in the dictionary because i didn't know what they meant yeah grown-up <laughs> grown-up language uh not meaning adult language right no yeah no, no not sorry <laughs> but like you know uh quite a complex vocabulary yeah this is a game that was clearly developed for a mature market but didn't do it by crude means no. now a lot of the time mature meant that it was either horror so it was had blood and violence or it contained a lot of swearing and this i mean there is an element of violence it's fantasy violence at that but it doesn't really rely on the shock factor or bad language i think that's a reason why it still holds up and it, and it has that following that it does it it didn't allow itself to be less than it could have been 
the Metal Gear Solid uh, comparison is kind of funny because yeah, there are no goofs in this uh, this game, no no cute references, uh, and uh, no no crazy end bosses with uh, ridiculous dialogue. No humor yeah. at all, really. This game has quite the development history. Uh, this is yes. <laughs> probably an area where we'll uh, lean quite heavily on yourself, John, um, having just sure. covered the development in depth. The outline is that this was a sequel to the first game. The Blood Omen was a successful development project. It was between two different developers, um, Crystal Dynamics and Silicon Knights. And, you know, we all know that when you get two different egos working together, it always works perfectly. So as you'd expect, it completely broke down and the companies had irreconcilable differences. Well, the thing about that, though, is at that point, Crystal Dynamics had undertaking similar arrangements with many other developers right like they're obviously they started out on the 3do but along there they worked with companies like toys for bob as it was called to make like pandemonium and the horde and so you know crystal was used to essentially sort of contracting and assisting other developers to work with them and that was the case with silicon knights but based on everything i've read it really sounds like you know working with uh silicon knights is challenging to say the least yeah some of those anecdotes like uh the 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 police being called in at one point because dennis was uh, arguing with someone to the point where people were actually concerned for their safety i mean things like that it got it sounds like it got really heated there so they ended up with irreconcilable differences that old chestnut the one thing is if you recall um so Activision obviously was involved in publishing Blood Omen and they were the yeah. ones that they reached out to both Crystal and Silicon Knights separately to ask them to essentially work on Kane 2, right? But there was a point along the way where Crystal Dynamics was uh, sort of, they were purchased by IDOS. And it was at that point that IDOS essentially staked a claim that, hey, we own Legacy of Kane. And that's what sort of seemingly kicked off all of this uh, legal stuff around who owns the IP. Which at the same time, you know, we'll get to what Amy and them were working on in the background, but that's kind of how that all came together, I think. That that was obviously the big thing going for them, and Activision ended up having to choose between the two of them. As it turns out, both ended up getting chosen to put concepts forwards. The Crystal Dynamics version apparently was not up to snuff. At the time, Activision genuinely felt that their version wasn't up to date. What we do know, however, is that Crystal Dynamics' vision of Kane 2 was not Soul Reaver. It was a completely different game to what we saw with Soul Reaver. The Silicon Knights version, I believe, also wasn't up to snuff, but again, that that is down to a claim that Crystal Dynamics were intent on disrupting all development of that project. Then we went on to the one more concept the one other concept, I should say, that was cancelled. Yes. And this is a concept title called Shifter. Shifter was the brainchild of Amy Hennig and Arnold Ayala, the lead artist. This was a game where the lead character was able to shift the realities around him, and it was a new IP concept between IDOS and Crystal Dynamics. Amy Hennig, however, says that IDOS ordered it to be cancelled in the conceptual stages and for the concepts to be made into a Legacy of Kane title. This uh, originally disappointed the team who were confident in their idea. However, and as Amy Hennig says, creative constraints can be inspiring and invigorating. And once they took the challenge on, it began to evolve in many exciting ways. Okay, yeah, that I think that's how it all ties together with the court stuff where... 
IDOS stake their claim of ownership. And obviously, if they fought to keep the legacy of Kane IP, they're going to want to use it. Yes. So, of course, it makes sense that the, to me, it sounds like what Amy's saying there is actually what happened, where IDOS basically came in and said, hey, guys, we have this IP. We want you to use it, integrate it into your game concept. I mean, that absolutely makes sense. It's a yeah. It's a franchise that's known and sold well, and why wouldn't you want to use it? Exactly. Do we know how well the first Blood Omen sold? Uh, I know this is no real indicator, but I wasn't really aware of it, and I was you know, quite into gaming, um, but I wasn't really aware of it, and I don't really know anybody who played it, uh, uh, you know, my contemporaries who played it. Dennis has claimed very high numbers, but I think the reality is that it's somewhere south of 500,000. That's quite good for not the era the genre yeah and we do actually have an interview with dennis dyack that we that we did um some time ago so wh- whatever your opinions are on the man it may be worth a listen so soul reaver was a game that did actually have a large marketing push uh we've all referenced the demos and it seemed to be going for a while like this was a game that was pushed for advertising for a long time before I remember getting my hands on it. Yeah, it was delayed, actually. It, it was. How, do you know how long it was delayed for? Uh, at least six months. I believe, actually, the original release date, well, more than that, actually, it was targeting January of 1999, and then they delayed it until August. They needed the time, and they still had to cut a lot of stuff. So, Ashman86, again, leaving uh, feedback on the community forum. So he said, I was first drawn to Soul Reaver by a magazine ad featuring the protagonist Raziel. His character design was quite striking to me, particularly because I couldn't quite make heads nor tails of him at first glance. I had no idea who or what the clawed and decaying being was, and I would never have guessed at his vampiric lineage, but that was all part of the intrigue to me. Looking back on him now, Raziel's a quintessential artifact of the 90s, reminiscent in design to McFarlane's spawn. And given that I was 13 years old at the time, I'm sure that was part of the appeal. Although I still think he looks cool, even by today's standards. Being a Sega fan at the time, I didn't own a PlayStation when Soul Reaver first launched, but I did download and play a demo of the game on my PC. I immediately fell in love with its Zelda-like puzzle-solving and its gothic environments, but I resolved to wait until the Dreamcast part of the game before playing it again. And Sneaky David also on the forums said, My only memory of Soul Reaver was a demo that I played on repeat. I may be misremembering (laughs) this, but I played this and a demo for Roll Cage on the same disc for months. I loved the gliding and the way your tattered wings and cloak would flutter. The effect of absorbing a soul was really cool too. Even with just the demo, there was loads of atmosphere. I kept wanting to go back. Playing PS1 games can always be a risky move. I could discover a classic or I could just end up wiping away the rose tint from my glasses. So yes, um, that's a good point. It's it's always <laughs> dangerous, and we've we've done it on this show before, where we're certain, I, you know, we really like that game, and it tends to feel a little bit rough. And then if we comment about would we recommend it now, and it's like I want to recommend my feelings and thoughts on the games from when I played it, but could I recommend it now? I'm not so sure. And sometimes we also have games where we thought like oh, it was kind of an okay back in a uh, game back in the days, and you go back to it, and you it's certainly all of a sudden a lot uh, better than you ever remembered it being. So um, I think it's important that we discuss the gameplay, the style of game that it actually is, more in depth. It, as we've mentioned, it was a big change from Blood Omen. Uh, it's no longer a sort of over-the-top Zelda-style, Baldur's Gate-style progressive dungeon game. It's now a cinematic platform, puzzle-solving and combat in a 3D action-adventure setting where Raziel can fight opponents, utilise environmental weapons and even shift realities. 
I it's it's still quite Zelda esque. I I feel it's kind of the jump from two D Zelda to three D Zelda that yeah. Ocarina of Time had made. It's the same kind of thing. Mm. I mean, Zelda, you have your item buying and your your villages and your town interaction. That's that's something that's almost completely missing in uh, in Soul Reaver. So I liken it more to one of the earlier examples of a Metroid game done in 3D. More of that. Yep, that's a fair assessment. Uh, yeah. yeah, exploration type game. I want to kind of tie into what you said, Carl, about it being a cinematic platforming game, because I associate uh, Tomb Raider more of being a, uh, with being a 3D cinematic platformer because of the grid-like movement and the exact measurement of your jumps and, uh, and everything. I mean, that's what I associate cinematic platforming uh, in the, as the likes of uh, Prince of Persia and um, uh, Flashback, uh, for example, go. Yeah, I think um, what we're seeing here, though, is obviously the Tomb Raider formula was very successful at this time and this game I think borrows some concepts from Tomb Raider but really focuses on tightening up the controls and presenting something a lot more fluid I mean this game did actually support the the dual analog sticks of the DualShock so you could have full analog movement just as you would see in many N64 games of that era uh, versus the you know grid based movement of Tomb Raider, so it just felt a lot more fluid to play. Yeah, it didn't, however, support stick movement on the PC. No, which is kind of weird. It was very um, diagonal in, in its movements. Uh, so the PC version was a lot stranger. Now, the way I replayed this for the show was actually the PlayStation One original via the PlayStation 3 and turning on the sticks that way. And then you immediately realize it's kind of odd to not have the camera on the right stick and that a lot has changed over time and you're controlling the camera with your triggers because the rear shoulder buttons rotated the camera. And when that ported to the Dreamcast, which only had two triggers, the only way you could rotate the camera was with the D-pad, which meant that you couldn't move and turn at the same time. Not entirely true, though. Uh, I mean, the way I manage the camera was so by press simultaneously pre- uh, pressing the triggers on the uh, Dreamcast controller. So then you sort of go into a view uh, a, a view kind of state where you can uh, look around the environment and I right. use that to sort of recenter the camera behind me. I have ne- never actually used the D-pad. So it's like the um, combat locking mechanic, but on a, on a dead space to rotate. It's more like it, the camera zooms in directly up to his back yeah. and you are frozen in place and just sort of look around using the right stick exactly. or sorry, the left stick because there's only one. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you're right. It does work well enough for that. But I definitely, especially in the last video I just did where I was playing them back to back to back, you know, you really start to miss being able to rotate the camera as you explore the environment. Yeah, I played through um, the first few hours of it again, uh, the PS1 Classic, I was playing it on the Vita. So I had to use those, you know, the, the back pad of the of the yes. Vita to use, the, which is not particularly accurate. You you can remap that, can't you? Uh, I you, tried. I you can map it to the right stick. I, kept, I tried repeatedly and it I, didn't couldn't, work. I couldn't get it to work, no. Weird. Yeah, uh-huh. which is a shame. But. So did, did anybody play it on original hardware? Yeah, I played it on a Dreamcast. Which, okay, uh, that's, brings, that's cool. Which brings its own uh, challenges uh, because uh, yesterday night I was playing till late uh, uh, to do the final boss battle and just when I was about to strike the final blow to Kane, my uh, Dreamcast auto-rebooted. 
Oh, so what? I decided, oh man! Yeah, I decided to call it a night. Uh, it's probably had uh, hadn't seen that long uh, continuous play for uh, for a long time, mm. and uh, maybe some heating issue or something. But I decided to call it a night and uh, do that bo- final boss fight over again in the morning. Mm. Yeah, the thing the thing though. Uh, so I did actually play the game on all of the original platforms, of course, when I made the video and. Uh, Playing the PlayStation version on a real CRT monitor, it really holds up well. Yeah. I think when you blow it up on like a, an HD TV, even using the PS3 Classic, I mean the pixelation, pixelization really sticks out. But yeah. playing it on a CRT, especially with some of the uh, higher resolution stuff it has going on, yeah. it actually looks really good for a PlayStation game. Yeah, I have the. Um, I was playing uh, with my Dreamcast. Connected to uh, Bang & Olufsen, uh, big TV, MX-7000 uh, with an RGB oh, cable. That's, those are great, yeah. yeah it looks, really looks amazing, but every game looks, every game from that generation, yeah. older generations of consoles, standard definition look, look really good on it. Yeah, I'm using a Sony PVM, like one of the 20-inch models, so yeah. uh, yes, also the same kind of thing. Everything hooked up via RGB, and well, yeah. <laughs> it looks good, you're right. Yeah, it's a quick aside, it's just you notice how much more timeless older games can look uh, if you Big use time. that kind of, yeah. kind of setup. Yeah, if, yeah, if you're yeah, pushing it sure. into to newer technology, it doesn't actually do it any favors at all. And I mean, well, and the, that's where a lot of rose tint is indeed getting wiped off of glasses. Yes, for sure. I mean, for, for as charming as a pixel art style is on a 2D platformer like Castlevania Symphony of the Night, I'm not going to stop mentioning this game throughout the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> it must be the gothic element of it. Um, and as good as that Vampires. can hold up, 3D stuff definitely tends to go the other way. Yep. That's exactly the right. That's 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 the right thing there. There is, uh, yeah, it does look a lot better on a real CRT versus blowing up 3D on a modern monitor. I mean, the pixels just don't work because it's not meant to be pixel art. No. And it sort of leaves you with if you don't have a Dreamcast plugged in, emulation's rough. Um, yeah, it, it is. It always has been for the majority of Dreamcast games. They've never quite got it right. Mm. Um, well, no, that's not that's not actually true. Uh, Demuel, the emulator, is really, really, really good, and I mean it. It plays most Dreamcast games almost flawlessly, and you can play Naomi Two, Naomi Virtua Fighter Four runs on there. You can play uh, uh, a Thomas Wave on there, so like Dolphin Blue, and uh, the games often run better than they do on the real hardware. Yeah. And Soul Reaver works mostly well, but there's something about the way it's coded that yeah. it just doesn't work perfectly on emulation. And it's one of the few games where I can say that. That's that's been a recent development, right? Uh, Demuel uh, and it's uh, yeah, Demuel's pretty recent. Yeah, and yeah, the advancements are pretty recent, but it's it's exceptionally good. Um, the 3D Zelda reference is quite accurate, and it's something that I'd never seen labeled towards Soul Reaver. Uh, for the longest time. And the only thing that made me realize how much like it was like a Zelda game was several years ago when the very first Darksiders came out and people were raving about it. And, and there was articles all over the internet that this is the Zelda game that we've been waiting for whilst people were left disappointed with the likes of Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, etc. And that Darksiders is worth checking out. And I was, remember thinking that Darksiders isn't a million miles different from what I played on Soul Reaver. Mm-hmm. It's just a modern take on it. And if that yep. is a new Zelda game, then Soul Reaver was a Zelda game. And I looked into it and I was like, Soul Reaver was a Zelda game. So um, <laughs> the the fact that we just had Ocarina of Time would have been a huge influence in the development, albeit relatively late, of course, but 
an influence nonetheless because we'd seen this Zelda coming for a while. Remember, it didn't just arrive on on store shelves. We'd seen it in, in development, so so had... That's actually an, an interesting point you raised there because if you look back at the demo, the combat in there is extremely rough. Yeah. And between that demo and the final version, they implemented a much more refined sort of a Z targeting system, similar to Zelda, but it has its own spin on things. I mean, obviously you get the Reaver and you can use uh, weapons in the environment, but I thought one of the coolest things is how you're essentially encouraged to use things like water, spikes, fire, light, things that vampires cannot you know, deal with as attacks. Yeah. 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 And it's like, sometimes you're put in situations where, all right, I don't have a good weapon available. I don't have enough life to use the reaver. What can I do here? And you forced to sort of deal with it. And I think that's kind of a neat little twist that you didn't see in Zelda. Yeah. It's interesting. You bring up the reaver because that all of a sudden makes me recall that, uh, it's almost a callback to the first legend of Zelda, where if you had full hearts, you could fire your, uh, sword beams off. Yep. Same with Zelda three. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you have, you have this, uh, sort of, uh, a, a very powerful weapon that only functions in its full, uh, to its full potential when you have your full health going on. Yeah. Yeah. So prior to this, there's maybe two, high-profile games that had Z-targeting, but this allowed you to do it, but move, which put Mm -hmm. it in a line with Ocarina of Time, but then allowed you to interact with the environment by, as we said, throwing them on spikes, throwing them on the fire, which, to my knowledge, made it the only one that was doing that at the time, which makes it all the more impressive. And if you can involve the environment, hey, that's a great thing. Bulletstorm sold a whole game on that, um, and it was the best element of it. So, what about Mad World on the Wii back well, in t- 2006? It's a, it's a, it's a perfect follow-up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the the ability to add in the environment and then pull off weapons off the walls and 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 yeah. utilize those as well means that the combat had a real element of depth that I just had never experienced in a in a 3D action game before. It, but this was pretty Devil May Cry and uh, and Onimusha. Oh yeah. So yeah, it it. It still is a bit rudimentary if you if you go back to it. I mean, I like mm-hmm. the targeting in combination with the movement that you could by using the uh, um, what would normally be your jumping button while you're locked on. You sort of zip around your uh, your opponents, uh, and you can you can uh, get out of the way of their attacks pretty fast. Mm, again, um, quite like in Zelda. Yeah, yeah, but it's it it has sort sort of a faster, you know, predatory ghoulish vampire yeah. <laughs> to it where you would just like really zip out of the way real quick um but the uh, finishing off uh, vampiric enemies also was the, the whole thing could be a little bit irritating for if you didn't have any res- resources around to actually finish them off with uh, and um the but there's something interesting about the combat in general is that there are not that many instances where you actually force a fight because enemies usually uh, wander around in corridors and if you want you can just run run past them and, hmm. uh, and jump past them. It's only the, the the only moments where I really wanted to get rid of them was while you're in a room trying to solve a puzzle, you know, where you're shoving shoving blocks around and you don't want to get jumped on by uh, some 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 vampire. That's an interesting point because it's one of the things I kind of discovered replaying it is when you're in the uh, material realm, I guess your life is always draining, right? So you will go back to spectral and have to 
come back to it. But uh, for that reason, I think they always like to provide, they have to provide you with enemies to deal with in order to get your life back up. So in some of these puzzle rooms, it's like it's on a timer. Like every so many seconds, they respawn enemies, which is really annoying when you're trying to figure out how to move a whole series of blocks around to fit in the room. And they just keep respawning enemies. And it's that that is one sort of weak element there that was pretty aggravating especially because it happened a lot in the cathedral area which big time creeped me out quite uh, much more than i had anticipated this uh, actually and if you look at the the zephanin vampires there the spidery vampires i found them very oh, yeah. uh, very unsettling looking and i it's interesting that i found them much more unsettling looking than modern more realistic looking giant spiders even uh, the likes of the tarantulas in in uh, more recent resident evil games or or remakes or remasters because it's this combination of the jittery movement and the low polygons actually the spindly yeah. rendered creatures and then they have these slap yeah these sort of low res fa- uh, facial texture that makes textures that make them even look more unsettling to me than if they had been rendered in, in painstaking hd detail uh, and then the, you have the scuttling movement so the, I, I really wanted to get out of that place and it's one of the longest section in, sections in the games and then there are indeed the puzzle rooms where you're trying to solve these puzzles and these things keep dropping from the ceiling and oh, they yeah. even crawl up walls when you're th- when you think you're safe, you know? Yeah, you know, actually that's an interesting thing I've been thinking about is I feel like the age of horror games, I mean, I suppose you could argue it's happening again, but for me it kind of disappeared when we moved away from CRT televisions. When you were the small, smaller screens that were low resolution that could do really good black levels, uh, you could sort of obfuscate your enemies really well and make them look creepier because you couldn't actually discern what you were looking at in that pitch blackness or in some of those environments. It was kind of, you know, you saw it on PS2, of course, with Silent Hill, but obviously on PlayStation 1 as well. And I feel like as soon as we jumped into the HD era, it became extremely difficult to nail that kind of unsettling horror and because of the high resolution and the change in TV technology. If you're left having to imagine elements of horror... It's always yeah. more frightening because there's nothing exactly. more terrifying than your own imagination. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Much, yeah. yeah, you know, the, another thing about uh, about the technical limitations of the game that also unsettled me was the the fogging or the darkness effect. Yes, uh, yes that's right. When you walk down these, these longer tunnels or hallways, there is an absolute pitch blackness, especially when you're playing it on a, a CRT screen. And there's this pitch blackness and you don't know what's coming and sometimes the music is very creepy with some chanting and some humming in it and uh it it made the game sometimes unsettle me much more than it perhaps had any right to because it's by definition not really a horror game i mean you should try it on the playstation one where you can't see the opposite end of a room (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true (laughs) although many areas are the same on dreamcast honestly yeah just they they fixed it in a few spots but most of the time the view distance is the same but like that that area where you're manipulating the platform before the first big boss to go down it's like completely black in there with all those weird metal pipes everywhere it's pretty unsettling i mean one sort of knock against the game if you will that i've heard uh several times is that it's a block puzzle game um <laughs> and to some degree it may be fair there is a lot of block moving although the animation yeah. where he actually punches his spikes into the block to move it 
will always be cool. It's something I loved right out the get go. Yeah, um, oh, yeah. claws in there. Yeah, it, it just <laughs> looks really good, and it feels weighty, which is always good in three D because so many games got that wrong. Yeah. But I, I feel like that does it a disservice because there are areas that are used to reach later on in the game that you unlock the abilities to benefit from later on. So it definitely falls in that whole metroidvania style of tracking back on yourself uh, i mean the very first room you spawn in has something that you can't utilize till later in the game um yeah. and in terms of a 3d game again metroidvania wasn't something that i'd seen that often i mean i'd played super metroid i'd played castlevania lord knows i've mentioned it enough already but this was doing it in a 3d and it took me a long time when i first went through this game to realize that i was actually traversing past areas to do something different it was almost oh, yep. i've gone the wrong way i've been here before and leave and then you realize no no i do actually have to go there and with we, there were aspects of that in resident evil where you'd go and get something and track back across and put it unlock something to carry on through and, and we've seen that impact of metroidvania in several games but this had a verticality to it as well that really felt like the world was growing out the more i the more i went into a distance, it seemed to be almost opening an equal amount back over myself. So it was in all directions, the world seemed to be feeling bigger when I was exploring it. And it, yeah. it, it definitely feels bigger than it actually is because yes. like they put in this fast travel system. Um, I can't remember whether I used it much when I originally played it. When I went back, went back to play it, there was literally no point in using it because it didn't actually take that long to get anywhere on foot. Yeah, it, it was good for me because I played a couple of hours uh, throughout the last two, three weeks uh, every now and then. And whenever you start uh, your game again after uh, having saved it, you start at, in the uh, room with the Elder mm. God. So from that point, it's good to just go as fast as you can to where you were the last time you played it. Sure. I think with that, we have to sort of get on to the thing that many people remember most about Soul Reaver, and that's the the shifting of two worlds, oh, or as it yes. was incorrectly described to me for so many years, it's two environments that switch between each other. No, it's really not. <laughs> it, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it actually uses techniques that we're seeing more and more in modern games um, with vertex painting. It's, it's something that I've done. It's uh, My history is in games design with a degree, and we studied all this. And for the longest time, many games didn't really use it outside of the Unreal Engine, which brought it into paint on surface. And this was a game that was doing this in 1990, well, 1998, and then 1999, uh, when it was yep. eventually released. Um, and it's, it, it's still a spectacular feat to see the world yeah. warping around mm -hmm. you, changing the colours, changing the textures, the whole tone. It's so impressive. I made it a point that uh, that whenever I would step into a, a portal to uh, shift back from the spectral plane to uh, the real world to Nazgoth, I was would always pick some sort of viewpoint that had me get the widest view of the environment, so I could very carefully look at how, especially uh, how exactly the environment was warping. And some of the some of the areas are minimal, and some of the areas are almost mind blowing. Yeah, you know, how the how columns and pipes twist and contort uh, into uh, different arrangements. And and when Amy Hennig is designing Project Shifter, if you will, you can see why Eidos would have wanted that concept at the very core of a Legacy of Kane game, because the implementation of it 
is near flawless, really, because that's the thing that was so stunning at the time. I mean, that that was its yeah. that was its real yeah. trick that it could pull out and show that other games just simply weren't doing. And any other game that attempted something since was, oh, it's like that time Soul Reaver when you could change between realms. It, it's a fairly simple trick. I mean, it's for to do it on the hardware then is incredible what they were doing on on the PlayStation. Uh, yeah, hardware. they they. They had to use that method because I think they did, did actually explore other options like loading two separate yeah. maps, for instance. But obviously, that's not going to work on the PlayStation due to memory constraints. So, yeah, just interpolating between two sets of vertex coordinates essentially is kind of what it comes yeah. down to. So you're using the same basic map data. You're just changing some points and going between that. And it's, it works. It's, it's, it's very simple. It's You've got animation zero and animation one. And yep. you're running an animation tween between them over a delayed cycle of however long it takes Raziel to do his animation. And the textures on the walls are changing between texture zero and texture one. Um, and it's something that every person who learns games design and does a games design course will learn. And yet we are seeing very few games since Soul Reaver that have utilized it as a gaming mechanic outright. You know, we a lot of games have vertex painting and, and the likes, uh, but we just wouldn't realise it because we're not seeing it animate in front of our eyes. Right, exactly. But it's still breathtaking when you're seeing a game like Soul Reaver in 1999 do it in 2017, in 18 years. But it's almost like it's so iconic with this game that any game that wants to replicate it is just copying. Um, yeah. So, you know, what do you do? Well, I will say that Titanfall 2 did a pretty good job with it. That's, you know, Titanfall 2. Titanfall <laughs> 2 did a great job, as did Singularity, which Titanfall 2 copied. Ah, um, that's true. Singularity. <laughs> Raven, represent. That's the one. Um, <laughs> I will also say I feel like next to the the, the narrative and the world building, this, this uh, reality shifting mechanic is maybe... For me, Soul Reaver's greatest uh, achievement and uh, greatest success. Um, one knock against what we call, you know, the abundance of uh, of block puzzles is that it makes for it slows the game down to a crawl in many times. Uh, yeah, you know, mm. you're doing a lot of long pushing and shoving and flipping over. And even though some of the block puzzles are actually quite clever, especially where you have to. Uh, make uh, complete murals. I uh, I quite like that, and yeah. they make you feel pretty smart uh, when you do it. But it was uh, wearing on me uh, definitely. But I never could get enough of the reality shifting and the the puzzles that went with it. Yeah, I mean, block puzzles are a common mechanic. It it's not just related to this. I mean, the Uncharted games are for a large part built on block <laughs> puzzles. Yep. So yeah. it, it you know it it's something that slows down the pacing of a game, allows you to catch up. Breathe obviously after you've killed the enemies in the room, um, and and solve a puzzle and you know it saves all about and development con- resources. That's it. Controls tempo whilst <laughs> saving on resources, and I think yeah. that you know the the greatest asset this game has is the world shifting because it's spectacular in what they were doing. But the real thing is what was under the hood of this game that ninety nine percent of people would never ever look into, which is how they were actually doing this on PlayStation hardware. It's mind blowing because that console had barely any memory to be pushing additional things around. Um and for a game to do it, even at the end of the generation, we know everyone learns tips and tricks. 
you're still hardware limited ultimately, and they're doing stuff that not only looks spectacular, but it's doing it at a higher resolution than any other game as well, whilst targeting 30 frames a second. Mm. And I mean, it's not locked, but even to target something was ambitious in the 90s. Yeah, it's actually, it's reasonably stable for the time, I'd say. I mean, it, I would, it seldom seems to drop below 20. Um, right. And a large period of the time, it, it remains close to 30. Yeah, um, I mean, at the time, amongst its peers of uh, PlayStation 1 3D, 3D games, it's definitely, uh, yeah, it, it looked like it was making uh, huge achievements. Mm. Yeah, I think you mentioned the higher resolution. I think that's something really worth pointing out here because, you know, most PlayStation games were targeting 320 by 224 or 320 by mm. 240, and that was the standard on Nintendo 64 as well. But to see such a complex game like this and also Quake 2 later on, uh, both of those games used the 512 by 240 mode which is pretty darn impressive, I'd say, considering the platform. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you're looking at, what, almost a 0.5 scale of a TV's output. Um, As near as damn it, at 480. So for a game to be doing 512 by 240 at the end of a PlayStation life and doing such technical things, um, I feel like the impact of Soul Reaver was more on studios' developments of future projects leading into what could be done for PlayStation 2, uh, Dreamcast, and so forth, with stuff like texture table lookups. And um, probably the closest thing that we had to that with really trying to implement something different in, in textures uh, was probably John Carmack when he started the Mega Textures uh, system, um, which, again, was lookups. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but on the PlayStation and PlayStation 2, uh, color lookup tables were the norm, right? Yes. And that's because, again, with the lack of, well, on PlayStation 2, there's a lack of decent texture compression, but it's basically a memory-saving technique because you can just use sort of a monochromatic texture asset and then just assign color values to it. And it works really well, actually, but... Over on Dreamcast, most games did not bother with that because they would just store them in the full RGB format, right? But if you look closely now, if you actually rip assets from games, a lot of Dreamcast textures have a lot of visible artifacts in them that even PlayStation 2 games do not. And maybe you couldn't see it back in the day, but if you look now, it's like, oh, okay, well, the VQ texture compression isn't that great in the end. (laughs) And it, it utilized other tricks. Obviously, the repeated asset lookup tables, the duplicate entries uh, on discs for reference oh, yeah, lookup, vertex course. painting, the higher resolution. I mean, these are all things that are under the hood that other developers must have looked at and thought, "Well, we can't, we can't do all this." Like, how how have how have they managed to do this at a higher resolution on thirty when Zelda doesn't come close to thirty frames a second? It's no, it's it's capped at twenty. Yeah, it's twenty frames per second. Max, or I guess like 17-something in PAL. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, um, three, 320 by 240, so it's lower resolution, lower frame rate, but it's pretty ambitious, but so is Soul Reaver, so. Yeah, uh, and and combine that with perhaps the ultimate trick, especially after Blood Omen, one lord. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that this, this is the thing that absolutely pushed their programmers to the limit as i understand and the thing that really helped define the game is yeah the lack of load screens and so the way they did that then is sort of pretty interesting 
they made it up so they can load three map chunks into memory at any one time. The one that you're standing in, and then basically the one behind you, the one you were last in, and then one in front of you. And they're constantly shifting in and out of memory the map based on sort of a prediction, right? If you're going down a hallway towards a door, it knows, you know, there's enough time between when you enter a room and when you get to that door that it has enough time to load the next map chunk. And if you're heading in that direction, it basically boots out the old map data Mm -hmm. from behind you to free up space for it. And so, but, you know, obviously, what if you had like a branching map, for instance, with multiple like, I guess the, the portal area where you toss in at the beginning cutscene, right? There's a bunch of different exits to that area. So they just build those tunnels into the original map. So by the time you're in the tunnel heading to the next area, it's it knows that you're on that path and starts to load in the next map. Yeah. So it's basically always predicting where you're going to go to a degree and holding those three maps into memory. And that's one of the reasons why some of the content ended up getting sort of cut to a degree from what I understand is yeah. aside from just pushing the system too hard and dropping the frame rate or running out of memory, it was like, you know, some of the maps they designed, they couldn't actually load them fully into Ram and you just would run into all sorts of budgetary issues. And I think I learned that, um, the development kits back then actually had some additional memory that you could use. So when they actually tried to run some of this stuff on a real PlayStation, right. yeah. uh, some areas didn't okay. work. So obviously it's like, well, they took a knife to it. Yeah, well, in, <laughs> in the end, it makes for uh, an even more fluid playing or navigation experience than Metroid Prime on the GameCube with its uh, wait for the door to open loading, uh, loading yeah, times, me- you know? I think but, Met- uh, of course, Metroid it, Prime isn't that bad, but No, yeah. it's not so bad, but it's, I mean, it's actually an uh, amazing game and even, even the loading times for that are very short. Uh, but considering that in Soul Reaver, you just walk to a door and you open it and you're in the next room and you can even see the next room through yeah, the door while you walk right. through it. That's pretty damn impressive. You know, ultimately, you can only push something so hard before it conks out. It doesn't matter what it is. Um, and this was a game that was pushing the PlayStation to the absolute limits of what it could do. I mean, we'd seen Tomb Raider growing with um, the first to the second, and then the third was really impressive um, with some of the new features. But I remember that they were struggling so hard trying to do four uh, with um, Last Revelation, etc. And and it was starting to see a slew of games, especially with PlayStation 2 on the horizon, which we all know about, which, you know, don't get me started on that killing off the Dreamcast with people not giving it a chance, etc. And I guess a lot of developers were thinking, well, it's easier if we just hold this back and utilize new hardware. We've got the extra editions. And they didn't. They didn't take the quick and easy option. They, They went and created what is quite honestly a complete technical juggernaut Mm. for the PlayStation hardware. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think delaying it further would have been insane since they started working on it in like 96 or something, right? So (laughs) it's like, well, we're just going to wait until the PlayStation 2 for this. That would have been a huge, huge mistake. Yeah. But of course, they got the sequel out on PlayStation 2 within a year after launch of that system, mm-hmm. which is cool. Yeah, I felt a bit conflicted playing through the Dreamcast version because it's sure enough, it's a very nice looking game. It's it's much nicer looking than the PlayStation version. But for a Dreamcast game, it actually lags behind a little bit in certain areas. For example, characters that speak without facial animation and the likes, it's, uh, it's a little bit uh, jarring. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although you do have a prettier Raziel to play with. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, 
it, all in all, it's a, it's a pretty good looking game. There's just certain aspects about it that makes you realize uh, you're playing a port of a, of a PlayStation 1 game. Uh, we actually have some community feedback that I wanted to read from Third Drawing as well. He said, I went into Soul Reaver with a cursory knowledge of the first game. I was blown away by the sheer spectacle of it. I loved the visual design of the characters, the mood and the voice acting, all of which created a specific gothic mood that wasn't in a lot of games at the time. The aesthetic of an almost Fallout style, decayed and cataclysmic as it is described, world really made for in, uh, was really interesting and I liked the idea that vampires had gotten so comfortable and lazy after ruling for so long that they uh, degenerated into uh, basic creatures which I hadn't seen before. If you look at uh, Raziel's brothers in the game, just how grotesque they have become. Yeah. So, and especially the first uh, brother, right? Melkaia, that you trapped oh, trap yeah. in the cage. It's just such a horrid mess of f- flesh that's ch- stalking you around this area. I just really didn't want to be close to it when I was playing. And in the cathedral area. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> And, and the boss fights, if we can uh, discuss them briefly, um, also aren't very combat-heavy, are they? They're, it's more of the, a matter of solving a puzzle and then carrying through. Yeah, that's actually kind of another Zelda-like influence, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But even they even feel less combat uh, yeah, you're than, right. uh, than a Zelda game. For example, the Cathedral boss... You just uh, make it, make uh, make him poop out his uh, his eggs and then set him on fire and throw them back at him. <laughs> and once you fi- once you figured it out, you you, know, you don't even get hit. There's there's hardly any danger in it. Hmm. I mentioned earlier that one of my loves in games is an environment that is able to tell a story. And I feel like going back to Soul Reaver, I really enjoyed the game at the time. I loved the environment, but I didn't know why. I loved the environment. Like, a gothic style was all, is always great. It's something that always appeals to me when I'm playing a game. That's something that I couldn't put my finger on. And, and now playing it, I realise what it is. And it's that I'm actually able to tell that time has passed and the events or put imagination to the events that must have happened for it to get to the state that it is as you played. Let's also not forget that there is uh, a lot of this is actually explicitly fed to you by the uh, narration of Raziel when he enters a new area, right? You yeah. have these little cutscenes yeah. where he sort of tells this thing to you, and and he's I mean, yeah, he's like he's constantly disgusted by yeah. the the state of the world, and he, he uses yeah. the word like defiled or desecrated or stagnant <laughs> to describe yeah. uh, various areas, yeah. And describing how his vampire brethren have uh, have fallen and uh, have devolved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the environment, regardless, completely backs up everything that yeah. that is discussed. Oh, yes. And yeah. this isn't a it's not a massively narrative heavy game. No. I mean, maybe for the t- maybe for the time it had more than most. I mean, it wasn't a Metal Gear Solid in how much voice work was in there. Yeah. Well, w- one thing that that uh, never ceases to amaze me was the the abyss uh, section with its vortex or swirling uh, water waterfall construction uh, down down the below the yes. bridge area. I, and one thing I I want to draw attention to, and it's something we'll mention more just in a bit, but I'm going to point to it, and it's something that. John mentioned in his uh, Digital Foundry video, alongside the information from Mama Robotnik, who, again, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the research that he'd put in. Oh, yeah. Um, is that in the opening cutscene, you see the smoking tower at the back uh, of this world that ended up being cut content 
from the release of Soul Reaver shows you the scale that they were going for that in their actually opening cinematic, every element that you see is sort of built upon a progression. Um, it's almost that Lord of the Rings, Mount Doom distance thing in the background that, you know, everyone likes that feature in the background. But the right. fact that that was going to be a location that ended up having to be cut due to time limitations, technical constraints for whatever reason it was, just blew me away that that was there right from the very start. And 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 there was, I mean, this, a lot of games have cut content. Every game has had yeah, something yeah, that was cut. Exactly. This game has a lot of cut content. <laughs> they had to cut out uh, in the entirety of one of Raziel's brothers. There's a fifth yeah. brother who doesn't come Turel. in until, yeah, Turel, who comes, but, and I don't know if he's in Soul Reaver 2, he's definitely in Defiance. Yeah. Um, you you fight his uh, his offspring actually, or or his uh, descendants, you know the the Turlin vampires, yeah. which are the most annoying enemies to fight in the game, pretty much <laughs> most annoying base enemies, hmm. <laughs> uh, which is really weird so because you don't you never enter his area where they were supposed to dwell, so they just pop off pop up here here and there in the story, and they are kind of abundant in the final area of the game. Hmm. Yeah, and you, you're aware of him. He's mentioned his tomb is there in the yeah. um, the Seraphim tomb. Time constraints, I'm presuming, is why he had to be cut out. Or, or, or again, limitations with they just couldn't get what they designed to, to work. Yeah. John, yeah. John might be more aware, but uh, because it, it actually references uh, on the video that he created. But can you remember how many areas it was that was cut? Was it, was it something like eight different locations or something ended up not making it? Don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it is a decent amount. Yeah. It, it It's not like a couple of rooms, <laughs> put it that yeah. way. Um, so for the, the, the game to end up being as complete, as long, and not utterly broken, Yeah. despite the fact there are clearly locations that you should have been able to progress down that you can't, yeah. the, the, it, it feels like they've done a really good job of pulling together. It feels like a complete game. At the 11th hour. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a small miracle that there are no uh, game-breaking bugs in there that uh, cause... Cause you to uh, cause your progress to be prevented any further at points. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and um, designing a, a map or a game world in the style of an arcade adventure, an action adventure with heavy exploration and gates uh, being locked off by abilities and items. It's that's not an easy thing to do, and I could even imagine that the, the Turel area would have been cut because a certain ability didn't make it in the, into the game that would have given you access to his domain, for example. Or it, it could be could be that, because it's yeah, everything is basically related to to each other. And that's also manifested in you know the glyphs, for example. You get these glyph abilities, but they're very inconsequential to your progress. And they, they're not even the greatest of help. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's how I felt when, uh, when playing. Yeah, playing no, you're right. Yeah, that was something that they, they came back and explored a little bit more on subsequent games. Yeah, you do have abilities that develop throughout the game. You know, you progress, you learn to be able to swap between realms, mm. um, yeah. or you can swap between realms outside of uh, portals. The ability to phase through walls in the material world, uh, gates, yeah. should I say. Not walls, that's called clipping. Um, that was avoided. <laughs> uh, so you could... You, go through get so again areas would all open up and and it never felt like something was out of order it, it 
good pace into a game is always important to the narrative and always important to the uh, experience of the user. Now, something like Sunset Overdrive, which we covered in the past, I said that that game really struggles for the first four hours because you unlock an air dash ability that opens up the game. And until you get the air dash ability, the whole mechanic of moving around the city quickly, which is the point of the game, is null. Um, (laughs) And as a result, the game isn't fun until you can get that. And it's about four hours to unlock it. And after that, it's an absolute blast. And you feel like that's how the game should be played in the first place. So where you've got something like Soul Reaver and the ability to go between two realms, then go through gates, swim, Skill climb. Yeah, climb. Yeah. climb. Yeah. You have to get the pacing of these right. And it's uh, this, this boils back to the, the whole Metroidvania thing and something that Metroid generally does a really good job of. Yeah. Um, and, and it's something that I really enjoyed about Soul Reaver because I never felt like areas were too drawn cathedral aside maybe uh, were never long. too drawn out yeah. yeah that's that's maybe the one that feels like it was off paced you know with everything else what uh, what the, my experience was is in the beginning of the game uh the first half my um metroid sense my metroid instincts or my metroid radio was going off all the time like oh right i cannot climb you know i remember this area where i was exploring in the beginning uh underwater where i would uh, end up in a, at a dead end where there was this climbable wall so I would would go there and figure it out but then I started figuring out you know the glyphs don't really do anything and I'm entering whole new uh, areas of the game which have a lot more sliding block, block puzzles to it and the game was wearing on me so I sort of started started leaving that that uh, that behind but that could just be me and the state of mind that I was in when when playing mm-hmm. it so I sort of sort of started avoiding the, uh, the exploration later on. So we mentioned at the start of the show that the game was composed by Kurt Harland um, of Information Society, and it definitely worked. The, the main theme is fairly iconic, I would say. It immediately draws me back to the game the moment I hear it. I know it's Soul yeah. Reaver, and I love that it's track. instantly recognisable. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, it's one of those, you hear it, you remember the place and the time you were first playing it. Oh, yeah. That, that kind of thing. Um, what are your thoughts on the music for the rest of the game, the sound design, the sound effects, etc.? I think it's great, actually. It's very atmospheric, and uh, one of the key elements there is on PlayStation and Dreamcast, uh, it's dynamic, right? Yeah. So it's it's sequenced audio. It's not pre-recorded uh, digital audio tracks like we you know often so we see today. So they're able to essentially constantly sort of transition and evolve into different melodies based on either what's happening on screen or the area where you are so it always feels like this seamless like uh sort of audio experience which is completely lost in the pc version by the way and i thought that was never possible uh, back in the days on uh, on discs i thought it was only something you could do on cartridges you know on, like banjo kazooie and, uh, and the likes I think I mentioned this in the video, but essentially, you know, the PlayStation's audio chip is kind of, uh, it's like a, a next generation take on what you saw on the Super NES, right? Yeah. So a lot of games early on did just use like CD Redbook audio and other games would use pre-recorded tracks, but a lot of PlayStation games, including ones you might not expect, used sequenced audio, 
which is just basically using samples and playing them back, you know, using the sound chip. I mean, would you guess that a game like Chrono Cross with its incredible soundtrack uses sequenced audio? I mean, none of that's pre-recorded. It's basically, you know, it's 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 that same format. Yeah. Wow. And you know, they just they just store instrument samples in memory or on the disc and you know, it reads them as it needs it and then the chip is essentially playing back a pre-programmed song. So in the case of Soul Reaver, though, he was able to include all different types of loops based on the moment and, you know, the programmers and I guess him as well, because you yeah. programmed back then, you know, they actually designed it to evolve dynamically based on what was happening on screen. And that's what really stands out. And it's really impressive because, as you see, you couldn't tell that that was the case in a game like Soul Reaver because the, it, it's dripping with atmosphere yeah. at all times, mm. visually, audio wise. <sighs> And I remember in the um, developer's commentary for uh, Dear Esther, Jessica Curry, the composer, Yeah, she she was a classically trained composer. She had com- full compositions, and she said that the big issue she had was when she saw Dear Esther, she knew how it want- she wanted it to sound. But when she delivered the songs, she wasn't aware that a player could backtrack on himself, leave the area, and that the music yep. that might be playing when you enter an area is completely irrelevant outside of it, and that the whole structure of how you build that track had to change to uh, small loops so that it could quickly change on a dime, play a section out, and then change and, and merge in. And it's something that is only really purposes in games, because in, in movies and in television, um, in an orchestra setting, you don't need to. You just need to go from point A to point B with whatever's on the screen, but this is dynamic. So to to be able to do that now is great in something like Dear Esther. To do that in something like Soul Reaver is rather sensational on disc. And what's really cool about it, you said you so you mentioned obviously, you know, sort of a celebrity composer coming in there, but obviously Kurt worked directly with uh, the hardware he was programming back then he wasn't yeah. just say writing music and that's kind of the difference right we've there's plenty of examples of like all right well we got this artist or this band to do the soundtrack for the game and they would usually run off to their studio record a bunch of stuff and then send it back and then it would be up to the to the developers to implement it whereas kurt was working directly with the development team at crystal mm-hmm to craft the sound for the game and literally programming into the game itself. So it was, you know, he was part of that process. And I think when you integrate somebody into the creative process, you know, you can produce magic and was somebody that was so musically trained at that point, he did a really impressive job. For someone who was involved in music in the industry and and not anything, they had hits, they had music videos, they were a legitimate band to uh, it could be seen as somewhat against their own ego to step down into video games because video games of of the PlayStation era aren't the video games of the PlayStation 4 era where right. it's you know it, it's no longer the event that takes place in the bedroom it's you know yeah. PlayStation's are under front room TVs and they're a, a big major mainstream element but um, uh, PlayStation so 1 was he, definitely the uh... Uh, the it time was the where beginning. That was the beginning of where that sort of it, that notion started to shift. Yeah. So for someone to come back and be willing to go into games, because he did this in 1995 when this was really starting to kick off. I mean, Yeah, is, he started off on like the Mega Drive, Mega Drive, yeah, exactly. The Mega Drive was his first foray into it. And then that could be seen. To, to be willing to humble himself enough 
to really throw himself into gaming and its limitations and really sort of run with it and design alongside it from someone who was actually in the music charts as a legitimate artist is fantastic because it's not always the case. That, exactly. You know, it would have been below a lot of people, uh, you know, they could or people could easily see it as below themselves to do that. Yeah. Um. In in the nineties, and he didn't. And in in doing this, he created a great atmospheric score yeah. that was ideal. But he did. He, I mean, he did just use flat out use a track from the album. Let's not forget uh, for the main theme. But it it, it worked. Yeah. It, well, it, you know, it, more that, than worked, that, it was great. That was the track that sold the development team on on him, a, on him specifically because he had made that album beforehand, and they were like, oh yeah. This is the song, and that was the song then that inspired the audio signature of the rest of the series. Yeah. And it's a very interesting mix of electronics and uh, more classical sounding, pompous movie score uh, soundtrack fair, right? It works really well because it brings the environments to life, even though, how, even though <laughs> they're practically meant to be dead and decaying. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, I mean, it, they make they make the environments seem seem epic and large and larger in scale than they are in are in fact. It sort of deepens the the sense of place that you have. But maybe what sticks out most for me about the music and sound design is just what you're hearing when you shift into the spectral plane. It's this sort of weird whimpering uh in the background like all, all distorted and then you have the sounds of the the wraiths and the these ghouls that uh cower about and it reminds me very much of uh another game of the era uh shadow man in its sort of unsettling soundscape uh oh yeah yeah and and there are more more uh ways in which soul uh river reminds me of shadow man um but yeah it that that's something that again brought a sort of a unsettling feel to the game for me much more than i was ex- expecting to uh, experience yeah there's that that constant sort of sound of especially when near the beginning of the game um that sound of crying in the background yeah, when you're in the spectral exactly. realm that's just really really unsettling yeah, that's something that you also hear in the Cathedral of Pain in Shadow Man, some, some crying mm-hmm. sounds that sort of keep on, yeah. Crying in a soundscape is always an effective yeah. mechanism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eternal Darkness as well. Hmm. Yes, Eternal Darkness, another game we've covered in the past. Um, a Dennis Dyack game, no less. Yeah. So there's definitely a, a, so many a transitional link. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'd be remiss if we didn't now reference the ending if i think if there's a time to maybe be a little negative it's probably now uh that i would expect some negativity towards it so uh i remember reviews would reference upon upon this um i didn't Uh read too much into it at the time until i played it and it had a feeling because you you end up at the final showdown you're sort of in a cauldron with kane and almost feels like it's somewhat of a sub-boss of a main boss that something's going to continue after this yeah um you complete it cut scene text to be continued it's a repeat of the game fight that you had earlier on in the game only now he's moving up ledges and it's kind of annoying trying yes. to chase him down uh, yeah in the final <laughs> final stage that's rough yeah <laughs> um it's in my opinion, it's not a great boss battle anyway. No, it's um, not. It's not even close. <laughs> it, it's 
the the room is one of the least inspiring rooms maybe no, that you're in. I don't know about that. But, I think the room um, itself, if you look at the geometry and texture work, it's really, really impressive yeah. for the system. I think it, I think it works as an arc game time traveling device. Yeah. Well, the elements above you that are somewhat like a a, a mobile, if you like, that, that hang above you and, and change with the, the actual clock. That bit's cool, but the rest of it I found awfully uninspiring. So. If you imagine that it's a sphere, you take the pie slice that has the travel device in it, that bit's cool. And the rest of it just did so little for me. I felt like it was very bland. Um, it just was, it which, wasn't to my taste. Uh, which, it, which version did you play through recently, Carl? The last version I played was the Dreamcast version way back in the day, um, all the way through to completion. Uh, the version that I played recently... Uh, for a few hours was the PlayStation version just to refamiliarize okay, myself you, you, with you the You didn't go, go, get through the ending in the PlayStation version because I've no. By coincidence, I've seen the uh, in comparisons, and the Dreamcast version looks uh, way more vivid than the PlayStation version of that room. The colors are different in it as well. I have a real thing about boss battles <laughs> in general. I don't really so often they're wrong. They're not all the TV boss battle from DMC. Uh, that that we had from Ninja Theory about five years, 2012, I think, 2013, um, which was magnificent. The vast majority of them fall so short, and this was another uninspiring one. It It's not offensively bad. It's not inspiringly good. But the real kick in the teeth is perhaps when it finishes and you just end up with a shortcut scene and a to-be-continued text across the screen, which... Uh, as a then 16-year-old, when I completed it, feels really, un- really, really underwhelming. Uh, but when you read now about the development history and the amount of cut content and hitting deadlines, you can kind of understand it. And I'm more than forgiving for it in the circumstances for the 95% of the game that was. If I would have played the game back in the days and would have ended on that note, I would just be really, yeah, I would really be aggravated having to wait uh, that, that, that longer to 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 follow up on it. Well, Soul Reaver 2 it, has a similar sort of ending as well, um, where it kind of just yeah. ends on a cliffhanger and then picks up at the, at the same moment uh, at the beginning of Defiance. And then, well, Defiance itself, the ending of that was a little bit like... We really hope there's going to be another one of these games. Um. <laughs> the the irony is, if it was a modern game and it ended on that note, you'd be like, right, okay, we're getting some DLC. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I can, you know, I can, I, I'll prepare myself to play that in a, in you know six to nine months, and and all will be well. But yeah. when it's a released disc game, it feels a little bit worse, um, and just confusing ultimately. Did it ruin your experiences at all? Well, not mine, because no. I played it in 2017 and I was prepared for it I think, to be abrupt. <laughs> so <laughs> I was expecting it. <laughs> uh, for me, I mean, I won't say it ruined it, but it definitely kind of left me on a sort of a sour note where it was just like, oh, um, you know, I, I walked away feeling a little bit annoyed by it at the time. I've obviously gotten over that, but yeah, when when you play it back in the day and you don't even know, I mean, I knew Soul Reaver 2 was coming and it was originally coming for Dreamcast as well, by the way. Uh, but um, yeah, it definitely left a bad taste in my mouth at first. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. It, it's yeah. It kind of like ended. And you're like, huh? 
Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, when I when I first played through, I, did, I didn't know there was going to be a second one. Uh, you always hope there's going to be if you enjoy a game, but I didn't know there yeah. was going to be a sequel. And so if, if that had been that, then I don't think I would have had quite as fond of memories of the series as you know of uh, sorry as i do it, if it wasn't for the fact that it picks up almost immediately at that point in the beginning of sorry the tooney current story okay, okay we're back but yeah, yeah at the time it was like oh this isn't great that's actually a cool thing. I, I really liked how Soul Reaver 2 essentially rebuilt the ending sequence of Soul Reaver yes, 1 yeah. in like a CGI mm-hmm. form. I mean, that was that was pretty cool. Yeah. So we've got some feedback from the community. We've got the first piece. We've had several pieces from Ashman already, 86 already through this recording. And this is a, a sort of continuance of that. He said, so the Legacy of Kane series' take on vampiric law is one of its greatest accomplishments, and while Soul Reaver's story sections were sparse and separated by vast swathes of wasteland, it was my fascination with Nosgoth and its denizens that drove me to return to it time and time again. It wasn't easy at the beginning to divorce my expectations from traditional folklore. The vampires of Soul Reaver were grotesque, but often fragile, susceptible to sunlight and water. All water, not just holy water. They were also the dominant life forms of their world with their last bastions of humanity relegated to heavily guarded villages that were few and far between. It's Soul Reaver's world-building that appears to me even today. For all its emptiness and dreariness, Nosgoth felt like a living world, a great feat accomplished in no small part due to the excellent writing and voice acting in the game. It was my first encounter with Amy Hennig, who I think remains one of the best writers in the business, as well as with Michael Bell and Simon Templeman. It was rarely in the 90s to find dialogue of this calibre and even rarer to hear it so elegantly and believably performed. Its storytelling was not its only success, however. Soul Reaver pushed the evolution of open-world action-adventure titles in ways we often take for granted now, particularly in that players could traverse the entire game world without load times. Streaming data was brand new technology and cutting edge. The first time I stepped through a portal to an entirely different portion of the game world, I was in disbelief. There wasn't so much as a stutter. I was just there. It was a philosophy the game had carried even into the player's death, doing away with game over screens and saving loading in favour of a more novel system. The spirit world always felt like a bit of a drag to me, but I appreciated that Soul Reaver never disrupted my sense of immersion. Once you were in Nosgoth, you didn't have to leave it until you decided it was time. I was a less experienced gamer than I am now, so hindsight may be rose-tinted for me, but I remember also enjoying the puzzle and level design. In a mechanic similar to those of the Zelda or Metroidvania titles that undoubtedly influenced it, gaining new abilities by devouring the souls of Raziel's mutated and hideous brethren in order to traverse more of the world was addictive fun and really lent substance to a sense of character progression and growth. When I finally gained the ability to swim and the once deadly bodies of water throughout the game no longer presented a threat, I felt a borderline godlike. Soul Reaver is not a perfect game, however, and I understood even at the time that it wasn't for everyone. Combat had a certain champ, particularly in how it allowed you to consume the souls of your enemies with a satisfying animation in which Raziel pulls down his cloak to reveal his jawless fanged maw, but it lacked depth and grew stale over the course of the game. The gothic atmosphere too felt heavy at times, and I found I had to take regular breaks from it whenever a certain feeling of fatigue set in. Most frustrating, however, was that Soul Reaver felt unfinished. At the behest of the Elder God, Raziel fights his way through all of his siblings one by one, consuming their souls and their uh, unique vampiric evolutions, except for Tyrell, who is inexplicably missing from the game and wouldn't be seen again until the series' ultimate chapter, Legacy of Cain Defiance, in 2003. Even worse was the cliffhanger ending and anticlimactic boss fight with Cain that appears at the climax of the story. With all its many revelations and leaves, literally no time left for even a semblance of uh, denouement. 
Ultimately, the serial approach to storytelling was something that Legacy of Kane fans would have to grow used to, but Soul Reaver has always felt like the most grievous offender. The final product is something that feels like a middle chapter in a much larger whole, more so than any sort of self-contained story. And yet Soul Reaver is my favourite entry in the series for two reasons. While it felt incomplete from a storytelling perspective, I'd argue it's the most polished mechanically. Subsequent games will rush through development, with three full-fledged titles hitting shells over the course of the following four years, each more action-oriented than the one before it. The open world of Soul Reaver, Soul Reaver 1, gave way to increasingly more linear design, culminating disappointingly in a less stylish Devil May Cry wannabe. And don't get me started with the bizarre story choices and retcons of Blood Omen 2. Finally, Soul Reaver's plot twist, the revelation that Raziel was once a Seraphon knight, dedicated to defending Nosgoth from the vampire scourge begot by Cain's unfortunate or misunderstood choice at the end of the original Blood Omen, is one of my favourites in all of gaming. It's just so deliciously ironic and so wonderfully delivered. I've always hoped that Square Enix would give us a chance to return to the Legacy of Cain universe. Nosgoth was an interesting shooter, but one that ultimately failed to capitalise on the richness of its own game world and never really earned a place in the series' canon. And the cancelled project Dead Sun looked promising but never saw the light of day. With Amy Hennig now involved in Star Wars, it's unlikely we'll see a truly fulfilling conclusion to Cain's eponymous legacy, but I'm very grateful, at least, for those chapters I did get to play, and this one in particular. Sean S. Thomas. Soul Reaver felt to me like the future of gaming when I played it. I had bought a PlayStation 1 after seeing Tomb Raider playing in a store, and I knew I had to make the jump to 3D gaming. But by 1999, the series had gotten stale, and Lara Croft's movement felt rigid and restrictive. Raziel, on the other hand, felt nimble and free. His ability to move on multiple axes and use his enemies' weapons against them was a huge generational leap for the adventure platformer. I played the official PlayStation Magazine demo disc so many times, trying to get across the giant void over and over to no avail. So it was a game I bought as soon as I could afford it. It's full of ideas that even now games rarely explore due to the complexity of such systems. But the one that stayed with me was moving between two planes of existence. Dark Souls allows you to exist in two forms like this did, but succumbing to the more brutal demonic realm here felt truly punishing, especially if you were mid-puzzle solving. And what a system being able to navigate the world in two different environments was. My abiding memory of Soul Reaver was regularly thinking, how is this on a PlayStation 1? The summer that it launched in hindsight explains that. Everyone I knew was talking about my PS2 and the PS2 announcement and Dreamcast, and this game ended up spending both generations of console, meaning it felt like, felt like you were playing something far more complex than what you were accustomed to. But that's probably why I still remember it now. There were chunks of the game that felt broken or not playtested properly, or like something had been removed from the PS1 version. And worse than that, it felt unfinished. I recall the final sequence in particular threw me off guard and left me with a real sense of anticlimax due to its abruptness. And yet, despite this, I hold Soul Reaver in very high regard. There are ideas in here used in many of the great games we play today, and whilst I can imagine that it's a pretty torturous game to play in 2017, in 1999 it felt like a start of an exciting new era for gaming. I think he has he has a good point because he mentions about Lara Croft's movement feeling rigid and restrictive and that it, it's something that stood out when I was playing Soul Reaver yeah. at the time. But I felt like Lara Croft's movement never really felt as smooth as it should have all the way until we got the Tomb Raider reboot by Crystal Dynamics. Mm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. uh, we, we waited a good 14 years, 13, 13 years yeah. um, till 2012 for the Tomb Raider reboot. Yeah. 
Wow, that that link, that connection just uh, messed me up. <laughs> it, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy that it for Lara Croft to feel anywhere near as smooth as Raziel did was over a decade yeah. and took the same developer. If you think about it, um, Soul Reaver feels more Mario sixty four and Tomb Raider, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to it now, that's immediately. My, was my first thought was how quickly I could sort of run in a circle, which is the marker of any game feeling like Mario 64. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, so, um, yeah, absolutely. So third drawing said, and this is continuing on from his earlier feedback that we said, uh, Amy Hennig's writing deserves to be commended. It can be a tad melodramatic, but I think it works within the context of the world and the voice actors sound like they really had fun chewing the scenery, so to speak. Yes, I was frustrated by the cliffhanger, but I'm more forgiving it now that I know the development of this game. It came out at the right place and time to really grab me, my last year of high school, and helped me get into industrial music and an industrial scene on Queen Street in Toronto in the late 90s. Those were the days. There were so many people into Buffy the Vampire Slayer around this time that it always made me shake my head. The villains on Buffy felt like cartoon characters, whereas these felt dangerous, mean, and legitimately like monsters. I wish they'd continued the series, but unfortunately it doesn't feel like Kane and Raziel can survive in a post-Twilight Hunger Games world where teens are the heroes and the monsters. Kane's railing against his uh, destiny for centuries, and stodgy old characters like Morbius don't seem audiences will accept them anymore. On the other hand, audiences are more used to serialised stories on television, and I wonder if the time isn't ripe for a return trip to Nosgoth. Maybe now more than ever, I think a trip to Nosgoth or some a reboot or a full remaster of the original Soul oh. Reaver would just be phenomenal with the hardware and technology we've got yeah. now. Sounds like just, yeah, uh, sure. just what the doctor ordered. Do you want to take Slim, Michael? So Slim says... I think what really struck me, but I couldn't articulate it at the time, is that the visual design is so strong, so different and amazing that I think it blew my 12-year-old mind. I can imagine. It, I never even thought of a vampire as anything but Dracula, but just the opening cinematic changes all that. You've got Kane simultaneously looking like nothing you've ever seen, and exactly like what a millennium's old being should look like. Raziel turning into a soul-sucking monster and he looks perfect. The bizarre and grotesque brothers, the Elder God and the Spectral Realm. Even now, it does my head in how much work must have gone into the design of this game, and it really shows in, a, in how engrossing the world and story is. The basic combat with vampires was also satisfying. It was always fun thinking of creative ways to permanently kill your immortal foes, and the way that translates to the boss fights was also really cool. I was always disappointing that Tyrell, the older brother, didn't make it into the game, and I later learned about a cool other boss that was going to be a human cult leader, but was also cut. I get that all these things would have been expensive and time-consuming to add, but it would have been much more fun than block puzzles. <laughs> In summary, this game really showed me as a young gamer that video games have a lot more to offer than just cheap thrills, though honestly there's nothing wrong with that. And though many people have a similar game that did this for them, for me it was Soul Reaver. So Al Fizzle uh, signed up to the forums uh, to post this specifically, um, and he said... And this is quite a long one, but it's one that I really wanted to include on the show specifically. He said... It's fitting that I discovered the existence of Cane Rinse when I entered Dennis Dyack guest podcast into Google and clicked search, with my fingers crossed hoping that there was an interview somewhere out there on the web where I could hear the man himself talk about the origins of arguably my most beloved video game series, before Silicon Knights lost the rights. 
I then immersed myself into Kane and Rint's Dennis Dyack interview and thus began my Kane and Rint's allegiance. The Legacy of Kane series was the first Kane and Rint's podcast suggestion I ever made. My introduction to the Legacy of Kane series began with a late instalment, Blood Omen 2. I remember being a young teenager shopping in one of the big three with my mother. I wanted a new PS2 game and came across an intriguing cover of a vampire holding an armoured man against a wall by his throat, with the vampire raising a rather odd-looking sword in his other hand. Curiosity had won me over. As soon as we arrived home, I popped the disc into my PS2 and wow. Instantly, the tone of the game had captured me, the environments, the music, but most of all, the writing, which of course doesn't compare to Soul Reaver. When I consumed the blood in my first victim, I was hooked. Even still, the the moment which arguably imprisoned my interest was when the game teaches you how to use the mist ability, which is arguably my most vivid memory of Blood Omen 2. Following this introduction to the Legacy of Cain series, I later came across Soul Reaver. I remember being initially disappointed that the main protagonist wouldn't be Kane. However, Raziel's ability to reverse realms quickly made up for this. Soul Reaver's narrative as a series is arguably the best I've played, with great attention to detail and engaging plot twists at every turn. The camera character navigation is clumsy at best, but the glideability along with the player's patience provides a workaround. Whilst not always remaining of a consistent standard, the approach to level design is appreciated, utilising very traversal mechanics and even implementing spirit realm-specific abilities, such as phasing through gates. The voice acting is splendid, and I find myself watching vo- uh, voice artist recording sessions for the game till this day. Rest in peace, the great Tony J. The technical execution of Legacy of Kane always impressed me. The multiple layers that came together to provide an overall in-depth experience is one that cannot be forgotten. I was gutted when I heard that the successive title, Dead Sun, was cancelled by Square, especially when their reason for this was that the game performed terribly in focus groups, thereby indicating to Square that there's no place for single-player narrative-based games in today's market. Nodsgoth, the game built from Dead Sun's remnants, was surprisingly an entertaining experience. But guess what? They cancelled that too. It has become apparent that Square are incapable of properly managing their titles. Heck, look at the games they've decided to shell from this year alone. With this in mind, I read online suggesting that From Software, the creators of Souls and Born games, would make a great Legacy of Kane game. Speaking of which, someone should create fanfiction where Raziel enters the Souls universe, ultimately having to face one of the Souls protagonists for, you guessed it, Souls. To end, I'm really excited that you're covering this series. My love for the series is how I discovered Kane and Rince. Thank you for deciding to cover this game. You're very welcome. It's a game that I've wanted to cover myself and I've been pestered by numerous people um, over the years to recommend it for the panel. Uh, Mark, more than anyone, in fact. On a weekly basis for every, a good while. Pretty much, pretty, yeah, pretty much a weekly yeah. basis for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, so... So we have a bunch of three-word reviews from the community. As always, we will ask for three-word reviews prior to a recording, usually the day of, um, on Twitter. Mikhail, do you want to start? Sure. Mechner says, sequel is better. Uh, Paddy Stardust says, Kane is deified. Connor Hawks said, amazing opening cutscene. Global Mega Dude says, soul-absorbing narrative. Hooray! That's the, <laughs> that's the winner. <laughs> <laughs> Darth Shinobi says, speechless, lacking jaw. That's pretty good, too. <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah, I like that. Part, part of me really wanted to read out Soul Absorbing Narrative because I think it's a fabulous three word review, but I also had to read his name, Global Mega Dude, read by John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, 
we'll wrap up with our summaries of the game now and I'll start because I may be maybe the least positive about my experience. I don't know. I'll start out saying that this is a game that I have always loved for what it has done technically uh, and artistically. Um, I think the world that was crafted is wonderful. It has a fascinating story that is, or at least was, underplayed at the time and is something I'd certainly personally appreciate much more now. Um, It's no surprise when you're looking at the writing talent and you realise that Amy Hennig went on to go and do the Uncharted games. Again, the story is pretty much the feature of those games I enjoy the most um, I'm not a fan of Star Wars really so I'll be interested to see what she can do with that she'll probably knock that out of the park as well um, environmentally I think it's a, a wonderfully crafted game uh, when you add on the technical limitations that they were playing with and the tricks and witchcraft that they pulled in accomplishing it it's something that I find nothing short of jaw dropping um, I feel that if I was to play it now, I didn't so much enjoy the combat. He feels uh, clumsy and aimless, and and that kind of combat really has been bettered. But for a game that was produced in 1999, it's a lot better than it maybe should have been. And given the countless 3D uh, games that we've discussed on this show from the PlayStation era... This may hold up better than the others that we've discussed. And that is where the biggest surprise of all comes because sometimes when you go back to the PlayStation generation titles, your happiest memories are destroyed and crushed right in front of your very eyes and it hurts your soul. And Soul Reaver didn't do that. I mean, sure, it has the texture warping that was common on PlayStation titles and it has a limited draw distance and it features visual stutters but they don't ruin the experience they just don't kill it off as so many other games do so that was such an incredible surprise Uh, I'd want to recommend the PC version but the movement of the character really if I struggle with mm-hmm. it with a stick, I could not recommend it with a D-pad or the D-pad movement that was implemented into it. Uh, if you've got a Dreamcast, that's the way to play it. Play it on a Dreamcast on a CRT. Um, if that's not an option, emulation probably is the best way to go about it. I don't like promoting emulation, but sometimes needs must. And um, it's definitely a game that's worth your time, especially for the... Not just how influenced it was by games like Zelda um, and Castlevania, but how it's such a clear, notable reference point that you can see that other developers and publishers would look at um, when they're designing future projects. Uh, this is a game that has earned its place uh, in history as a, uh, in, in that generation of games to stand alongside the likes of Metal Gear Solid, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, Tomb Raider and Resident Evil. This more than holds its own in that group. Um, it's a steamed company and belongs in there with them. Mikhail? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of... Uh, I, I kind of feel similar to you, but I'm the only one on here uh, that uh, hasn't had a substantial history with the game uh, other than having seen played in uh, somebody else's place back in the days and having to want to play it for, for a very long time. Uh, 
and my, maybe I'm a tad more negative uh, than you. And I'm usually the apologist for all the games and their quirks on here. I remember us uh, almost having words about flashback uh, back in uh, <laughs> back in that episode. Um, so I really don't like it. My c- conclusion is almost heading in this direction. But I had a pretty rough time playing through Soul Reaver in 2017. Um, maybe if I had played it uh, all the way through when I actually got into 2010 or 2011, I might have felt a lot more positive then already and gotten a lot more enjoyment out of it. Um, so, yeah, it also didn't help that I was playing it side by side with uh, my newly acquired copy of The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So, you know, being able to fluidly scale any vertical surface and uh, and makes all this sort of unnatural wobbles over angle geometry and getting stuck in uh, polygons for a quick minute uh, seem yeah extra painful and you know there, there's a general lower level of response in the game yeah it's it's not unresponsive but yeah it, it's the game is not as responsive as as I would have liked it to be and there were some really uh, nasty uh, precision platforming sections later on in the game in a drowned abbey for example where you have to navigate these beams and land land on them without it's this classic early 3d platforming thing right where you kind of have a momentum when you land and you take a few extra steps and you fall off the uh, of the other side it's always a bad idea when the, the platforms are very small and very narrow and then you have to redo this part again because at that point you haven't uh, gotten the swimming ability yet so you fall all the way down in the water and you have to gain some uh, souls to make the be able to shift back to the, the material world so it's uh, there was a lot of stuff in that for me uh, for me and I mean the, the combat was fine but I didn't find it particularly interesting and the block shoving also wore on my patience but I don't want to sound overly negative because the game still in 2017 also has many successes I mean the atmosphere and the narrative is uh, is striking enough and it still works for me and the plane shifting and the puzzles that went with it never really ceased, uh, ceased to amaze me so yeah it, it was always like a moment of magic to see the environment warp and twist around me uh, as I shifted uh, into the uh, living or the, the dead living world out of the spectral realm um, yeah so Maybe it is the fact that I've this was my first time playing all the way through it that I feel more negative about it uh, about it uh, because last year I played through Conquer's Bad Fur Day and that has some really rough platforming sections in it as well but that was a game I already already loved from back then um, so I don't you know if you place it in its proper context Soul Reaver that is. It definitely was an advancement over uh, advancement over many other action adventure games uh, in uh, in three D worlds. So, yeah, it might might just have been me and at this particular time that I didn't gel as well with it as I would have liked to. But still, yeah, I mean, I'm happy that I played through it and the strong points really worked for me. And I am kind of absorbed into the world of Nosgoth, and I do still feel encouraged to check out the other games in the series. So, yeah, that's uh, that's about it for me. Thanks. And now to our first guest, John. What are your thoughts? Well, it was interesting. I've essentially spent about a month with the game uh, because I was researching it for the episode that I did. So I played a lot of all three versions. And, yes, it does certainly have its rough edges. But 
having not played it for years prior to that, I was really surprised at how much it actually gripped me. And by the end of the day, I actually wanted to just sit down and keep playing the game and really get back into the story because it really does kind of pull you in. Another thing about it that's, you know, uh, is more like I'm fascinated with the history of the game as well as like where the developers went on to after creating it, essentially, because... Crystal Dynamics has such an interesting connection to, I guess, the AAA gaming space. And many of the people that worked on the game uh, went on to do other great things as well. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, uh, it's interesting to see how many fingers touched that game and really worked on it and how that's influenced the current state of games today. And I, you know, of course, I appreciate how forward looking it was in many ways. I mean, it was one of the first games, if not the first to do real-time data streaming from a, you know, a disc-based console in that way. It sort of set the stage for somewhat for the, the type of, you know, more open environment games that we have today. It just, it, it, it was a very forward-looking game, and I think that's one of the things to take away from it. So even if you find it to be too rough in ways and it's difficult to go back to in 2017, there's a, it's at least worth revisiting to get a better understanding of the history of the game and its importance and what it offered to players at the time that has essentially helped steer the industry in a certain way today. And of course, you know, it was genuinely a huge title right up there with the likes of Final Fantasies and Tomb Raiders. I think a lot, anybody that was into the PlayStation at the time will at least remember hearing a lot about Soul Reaver. And I think that the recent, if you look at the sales charts for the re-release of Crash Bandicoot, for instance, I think it showcases that we're at this point now where PlayStation nostalgia is really starting to hit hard. Mm. A lot of people that grew up with it, they're looking back on it in the same way that a lot of us look back on like Nintendo and Sega back in the day. So I feel like that's almost sort of hinting at the potential of what a remake or revisiting that type of game world could be in terms of sales and attention. I suspect it would actually do extremely well. And I do think that the nostalgia plays a huge role. So, you know, we also have the final fantasy seven remake, whatever coming, whenever that hits, that got a lot of attention. Crash was just re-released. I mean, bringing Soul Reaver back kind of seems like a no-brainer to me, but we'll see. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on it. I, I enjoyed replaying it. It's definitely rough around the edges, but, you know, I think it's an important game. And uh, Mac? Yeah, uh, I, I agree that it is kind of a bit rough around the edges, Um by today's standards for sure um and uh, coming to play it fresh in 2017 if you hadn't played it before then like a lot of games from that era it's going to feel difficult to play it's going to feel a bit odd it, it came from an, an era where where the controls for 3d platformers and 3d action games hadn't been sort of set in stone um i mean this is only three years after mario 64 um, so it was still, it's still kind of the genre was still kind of in its infancy. But if, if one thing that, that that just that holds up to this day is is the the, the storytelling, the the world building, the the atmosphere, um, the, and the voice acting. Like I like I said earlier in the episode, is still just top notch. Like I, there's not many games that I've played that have come out in the last few years that have got voice acting quite as good. Um, 
as uh, Soul Reaver. Um, it's it was the first game I think that I played where I got fully engrossed in the world um, and just wanted to learn more about it and more about the lore and um, the characters and the backstory. Um, and this is the days before they had like dedicated wikis for for um, you know games. Um, so I was just on tenterhooks waiting for the sequel to find out more about that, uh, more about the world of Nosgoth and and what had happened. And there aren't that many games that have come out since then that have got the hooks into me so much in terms of fully engrossing me in the world. Um, and Soul Reaver was definitely the, the first one that ever did that to me, and uh, it's always going to hold a, a special place in my heart because of that. Thanks very much. Um, right, so, Mark, where can the listeners of this podcast find you then? Twitter, podcast? Uh, they can find me personally on Twitter at Damocles693, um, which is also my gamer tag on pretty much everything. Um I also appear on a podcast called Laps Gamer Radio. Um, you can find us at uh, lapsgamerradio.com, um, Laps Gamer Radio podcast on on uh, Twitter, uh, on Twitter, on um, on Podbean and on uh, iTunes, uh, and you can find us on Twitter at at Laps uh, Gamer. And John, how about yourself? Where can the listeners find you? Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Dark One X, and I am regularly posting over on. Eurogamer.net slash Digital Foundry and all of our videos go up on YouTube.com slash Digital Foundry as well. And of course, be sure to check out the DF Retro series I've been doing since about a year now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> excellent. DF excellent. Retro uh, is fantastic. It's my it's it's one of my very favorite ones on YouTube. <laughs> um, given that I tend to be on the majority of our retro episodes. Yeah. Ex- excellent choice of games as well. Yeah. Thanks. With that, I thank Mikel and guests Mark and John. Thank you for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, And next time in issue 280, we continually separate from the group, make bad decisions, and stumble our way through the cinematic horror of the PlayStation 4 exclusive Until Dawn. Thank you.